0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 24, twenty sixteen edition of Ask a Leader. As for today's program, UCI political science professor Tony Smith will lay out how he predicted during last fall the outcome of the Republican Party's nomination process. And later, as well, he'll cover the sexy topic of gerrymandering, a pox on all our districts. It's too important to miss and his latest book. Then in advance of this Memorial Day, Ms. Kylan Maxwell, surviving spouse of Marine Corps Reserves Corporal Nathan Maxwell, will honor her husband who died by suicide. She'll speak as an affiliate with TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Be right back after a break. Welcome back, everybody, to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Charles. Anthony Smith, we'll call him Tony, if I get that permission. That's great. Thank you. He's UCI professor of political science. He, along with others, Anthony McGann, Michael Latner, and Alex kena have a fresh new book that behooves us all to consider because it affects every one of us. The book is entitled Gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, and the Future of Popular Sovereignty. We're going to make that whole loop here by the end of this interview. It's published by Cambridge University Press. This is his fourth book, unless he's got some stashed away that I didn't get a count.
1: (laughs) No, that's accurate.
0: Okay, and he's published on war crimes, gay rights, and human trafficking, to name a few. Tony Smith's research interests take up how law and legal institutions fulfill or inhibit rights in the U.S. and around the globe. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts at UNC Chapel Hill, his law degree at the University of Florida, and his Ph.D. at UC San Diego. He comes to us today from up the ring road. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tony Smith.
1: Great. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, before we get into the full into this book, we're going to find out how Tony Smith called last fall the outcome of this year's GOP nomination. Yeah, so um, as the summer kind of dragged
1: on last year and the, the press and even some uh, empirically driven folks like Nate Silver were saying there wasn't any way Trump could win, I kind of looked at it and it had a very different take. Uh, and actually this ties in a little bit to gerrymandering in that yes. because of gerrymandering, the House of Representatives looks very different than the average voter. The only competitive elections are in the primaries. And the people who vote in the primaries are the most extreme partisans uh, for either party. And so the Republican Party had sort of been taken over by these um, folks like Ted Cruz. He's a senator from Texas, of course. But the, the so called Tea Party caucus in the House of Representatives was driven by a lot of folks that kind of uh, sound like Ted Cruz and kind of sound like Donald Trump. So as as I looked at the primary, I started asking myself, well, what does Donald Trump say that Ted Cruz doesn't say? And there isn't a whole lot, uh, and Trump just did it better. He was a more appealing candidate to rank and file Republican primary voters, um, and he did things that the Republican elites don't, that Republican voters wish they would. For instance, he said, I'll never cut Social Security. Well, the only folks that want to cut Social Security are are very, very, very wealthy Republican voters. Rank and file Republican voters don't want grandma to have to go be a greeter at Walmart. They want Social Security. They want it protected. They're not opposed to it at all. So the Republican Party has had this kind of conflict with the financial elites that would like certain things. They talk about capital gains taxes a lot. Um, and the Republican voters, who don't really care about these issues because they don't have capital gains, their grandma's living on Social Security. So w- w- Trump was just a better version of the Ted Cruz's and the Scott Walker's. And the the. the the Republican establishment, and by that I mean the elected folks, the folks that run the party, um, the primary money people um, who, who round up all the money they spend uh, on these campaigns, they, they bet on Jeb Bush, and they underestimated Bush fatigue among the voters, and they overestimated how good of a candidate Jeb Bush was going to be. And so with only Jeb Bush in the race as the as the establishment person, everybody else was trying to be some sort of an insurgent. And some of the very best candidates did not get in the race. The Scott Walker is not – I mean, he, yes, he's won in Wisconsin, but he's not really a good candidate. Marco Rubio, it's hard to point to any successes. When he, when he was elected uh, senator in Florida, he did worse with the Latino voters than Jeb Bush had as governor. So these people – the press presented them as all very strong candidates, but in fact they were not. They, they, the stronger candidates would have been people like Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Um, Chris Christie got in the got in the race after being severely damaged. John Kasich got in the race so late that he really didn't even compete in most of the states. So some of the people who could have been really good competitors and maybe kept Trump from being the nominee <clears throat> simply weren't in the race. And then Jeb just flopped. The they. The establishment bought somebody that the that the uh, voters didn't want. So all Trump did was a, be a better version of Scott Walker and, and um, Ted Cruz. He was more clear. He's more comfortable on TV. People already knew him. He had a higher name recognition than any of the rest of them. And then when you saw the polls, he was persistently hitting about 30 percent early on. And institutionally, the way the Republicans had set up their campaign, it's a little bit different than the Democrats. The Republicans had some um, proportional distributions at the beginning, but then they quickly shifted to a winner-take-all scenario. Uh And that was designed to keep, ironically, to keep insurgents from causing the mainstream candidate problems. If you compare that to the Democrats, it's all 50-50 all along, which is why once Hillary gets a 300 delegate lead, it's insurmountable. There's no bernie sanders would have to win every delegate and i mean there's there's just no realistic scenario for sanders to to surpass her in delegates uh because it's all 50 50 you know it's all um uh, proportionally distributed from now on so trump was able to get a a the most solid um um plurality going so his his coalition works in the northeast it obviously worked in the south it worked in the west his coalition of republican voters so he never had to get over 50 percent and because of the institutional structure of these winner take all clicks happening relatively early in the system um somebody like ted cruz who wasn't competitive at all in the northeast barely competitive in most of the west really had no shot um, and uh, uh, so early on, if you took Trump seriously as a candidate, it, it, if he had been ever elected a governor or a senator or something like that, everybody else would have taken him seriously very early. So, uh, so my early call on it was based on uh, if you ignore the fact he's never been elected to anything before, he's actually doing a, a better campaign than anybody else. He's appealing to his base, and he's getting them to turn out, and he's using the uh, institutions that were set up. So he he came out on top with pluralities, and then he came out on top with winner-take-alls with relatively low threshold wins and uh, just knocked everybody else out. And he he looked like a real – pardon the language – badass for knocking (laughs) these people out, but most of these people were not very good politicians. Um, if you go back and look at Scott Walker on the on the trail, he just absolutely was not ready for primetime. Marco Rubio froze on the debate stage. Well, that's
0: what I was going to say, Tony. Is that there, Trump has an uncanny ability to not hesitate in the slightest. Yeah. There, the hesitancy is sort of it was stuck to all of their the Velcro to, yeah, to every other candidate. I, I don't so. know if
1: you've ever heard this uh, comment that uh, Washington D.C. is just Hollywood for ugly people.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I so have, yeah. Uh, Trump was much more comfortable with the cameras and the microphones and the reporters um, because he's been in front of cameras persistently f- for the last thirty years. These other folks, you know, they run they run an election, then they don't really. They're in front of microphones begging for money all the time, but they're not really under the scrutiny of of, of the media and constant the constant watching eye of the camera. So. Uh, Some of these folks just weren't ready for primetime. If Marco Rubio had really taken his job as being a senator seriously and maybe spent two terms in the Senate, maybe he would have been a credible candidate. But when he gets up there and he's got no accomplishments and he's never even created jobs or built anything or accomplished anything besides being elected to stuff, well, that's – you know, that's a pretty light competitor to knock out.
0: So what – with these – all these attributes that you're talking about, what – are you saying about the general elections outcome? So
1: so the general election outcome is gonna be very different. For one thing, everybody votes or at least half the people vote, um not just this small slice that you see in the primaries. Um and and if you if you go back to the last six elections, there's sixteen states the Democrat has carried every time. If you take those and add them together, Hillary Clinton's gotta win about another thirty electoral votes. If you see some of these polls right now showing Trump a little bit ahead or tied these national polls, they're, they're all pretty junky. And I, I feel like they're designed to get clickbait happening on the Internet. Okay. Um, if you look at the internals of these polls, they're all assuming that Trump gets all of the votes that Mitt Romney got and improves a little bit with Latinos and African Americans. Well, there's no reason to believe this. In fact, there's a lot of reason to believe the exact opposite, that Latinos might vote in overwhelming uh, numbers. We have an analog here in California. When uh, uh, Pete Wilson um, went after Latinos and demonized them, it killed off the Republican Party in California. I mean, they're, they're persistently going to be a minority party for a very long time because they... Wilson's uh, approach to being hostile to Latinos right, shifted the voters permanently to the Democratic side. So, But uh, de-
0: deportations in the Obama administration isn't doing a lot about Latino turnout. Well, it's not
1: helping, but it pales in comparison to what, what Trump's talking about.
0: Well, and one thing about the general election, too, I'm taken by a, an op-ed piece that David Axelrod wrote in the New York Times. It's probably about four or five months ago at least. And, mm-hmm. and it was an interesting sort of a psychological piece about how voters— will reverse the kind of dynamic that coming out of the White House. So it, yeah. it would make the case for Trump would bring in a whole, the opposite sensibilities that Obama brings right, to the White right. House and that he is very well disposed to uh, yeah, making a good mean, showing.
1: So th- that's true. However, there are fundamentals that would predict whoever the Democrat is should win. For one thing, um, Obama's popularity is over 50%. Another thing, the economy is solid. it's not booming, but it's not bad. and the there's a demographic shift. so the the percentages of white voters are, is smaller, and the percentage of Latino and African American voters is larger. So um, one of the one of the claims that the Trump folks are making is he's going to appeal to working class white voters and therefore put Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio in play. Well, the problem is, middle-class white voters have not voted for the Democrats since 1972, so those voters already vote Republican. There, there, are, there isn't any surge of voters that Trump is going to get. So, um, I, you know, if, at this point, I would think that you're going to see Hillary Clinton with in excess of 300 electoral votes, and Trump will will either not Crest 200 or barely Crest 200, that it's going to be a pretty substantial uh, loss. And the reason is you've got states like Arizona and Georgia are now toss-ups. Okay. So those should not even be – the Republicans shouldn't have to spend a nickel in either state to oh. win them both handily. Okay. And if those are toss-ups, this stuff tends to be co-linearly uh, related, that, that if – Arizona's a toss up Colorado is going to be a solid win for the Democrat. If Georgia's a toss up Virginia and North Carolina are probably going to go uh uh democratic in other words
0: okay, well, we've got a whole book of yours in the remaining time, so let's see we how far do. we can get into this. It's two thousand and four. And the Supreme Court, with a five-to-four decision, pivoted in no small way with the V-versus, and I'm going to pronounce it. Whole, jubilaira, ju- jubilaira. 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 Jubilaira decision. And, and actually,
1: let me correct just a little bit there. It's actually a 4-1-4 opinion. Oh. <laughs> so it's a little sketchier. So the, since yeah. um, early on in in voting rights jurisprudence, there's been a debate at the Supreme Court okay. about whether – uh... Um, since the, the the decisions that brought in one person one vote the, the question has been is um, are there rights to vote uh... that also translate into representation right is it a basic fundamental equal protection right that your vote should translate into representation if you're on the right side of things uh... is how you do partisan divvying up of the votes is that a political question that's what we call non-justiciable, which means the court won't look at it. So the the Constitution says the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction over political questions. So from the very beginning of the uh, voting rights jurisprudence, Um, There has been a sector of the Supreme Court, the conservatives on the court have always said, gee, this sounds like a political question. Partisan gerrymandering sounds like a political question. So when VEATH comes along, it didn't get really any attention because Citizens United came along right around the same time. And people thought, oh, money's going to blow everything up. I think think the Koch brothers might say Citizens United panic was overstated since they keep spending hundreds of million dollars and not getting what they want. But... um, Veth comes along, nobody pays any attention, but, and what Veth says is the court won't look at partisan gerrymandering, four of them say, because it's a political question. Kennedy says, because there is no uh, standard that we can easily and reliably use. The four dissenters say, it's absolutely not a political question, it's an equal protection question. So here is how this made a difference. Always before, there was a threat that the court would aggressively embrace overly partisan gerrymandering and strike down districts. So the, the states where the, where the districting happens sort of self-constrained. It's a bit like if you know – if you're a little kid and you know your mom is in the next room, you might not go into the cookie jar to steal a cookie because she, she might hear it and you're going to get in trouble. If you know your mom's outside mowing the grass, you might steal the cookies with abandon because you know she's not going to hear it. So there was no threat of sanction after Veith versus so the so the self-constraint stopped. And we show uh, empirically, um, without any question, that partisan gerrymandering got much more severe with the redistricting that happened after V.
0: Well, yeah, and it, what it did was it—they t- took the money out of the mom's purse and they bought cookies at the store down the street.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Or sold the mom's cars. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's much more severe. Um, we we have a little chart. I don't want to I don't want to you know read off a bunch of states, but we have a little chart. Please. So we we developed a, a measure for how to determine if partisan improper partisan gerrymandering had happened. It's a very simple idea. It's partisan bias. So if Democrats win 60% of the vote and get 50% of the representatives, if Republicans win 60% of the vote, they should get 50% of the representatives. So in other words, we're not saying it has to be a one-for-one matchup, but rather, if I get 50%, and I get 60% of the representatives, if you get 50%, you should get 60% of the representatives. So whatever the vote share is should result in the same amount of seats if it's fair. Now, in Alabama, if Democrats get 50% of the vote, they get 25% of the seats. In Mississippi, if Democrats get 50% of the vote, they get 22% of the seats. In, in, um, I'm sorry, 28% of the seats. Um, in Pennsylvania, um, Democrats would have to get 65% of the vote to get half the seats. Republicans only have to get about 40% of the vote, to get, or 45% of the vote to get half the seats. So they've shifted it so that some votes count a lot more than others. And in a real sense, you might think of this as a revenge of the anti of the anti-federalists. Um, the the great compromise was we end up yes. with the House and the Senate. The House is supposed to represent the people. The Senate is supposed to represent the states. But now the states are choosing the makeup of the House of Representatives. Right. So politicians are choosing their voters rather than the voters choosing the politicians. And if you just apply this partisan bias. Measure to it, you, it reveals it instantly where everything is, and we can get it very precise and really without any argument that what we're showing is is accurate. Um, and and we have solutions. Um, California is a perfect example. When they put in the nonpartisan um, districting commission, uh, the bias goes away. It's almost a perfect. Uh, 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 stretch that if you get 50% of the vote, you're going to get 50% of the seats, uh, no matter who gets that 50%, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. Um, so there, there's an easy solution to this, and that is nonpartisan gerrymandering. But you've got to get the court, you've got to get Kennedy to embrace this is an easily applicable measure that that could be used. Um, And, of course, this may change depending on who replaces um, Scalia.
0: Okay. uh, Just for those of you who tuned in right now, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Tony Smith, UCI professor of political science, and we're covering his recently published book, Gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, and the Future of Popular Sovereignty, published by the Cambridge University Press. And Tony is talking about the remedy for the undermining of the Great Compromise in how state legislators and governors in the same party have had taken control of the apportionment of the districting process in each of the states giving, in this in this stretch, the GOP an enormous uh, advantage that has pretty much institutionalized a majority in the House of Representatives. Yeah, and, and
1: routinely, um, the Democratic members of the House of Representatives, despite they're much smaller number. If you add up their votes, um, there, it's one to two million more votes than yes. the Republicans got, even though there are more Republicans. Uh, so if you divide it per representative, it's, uh, it, it's kind of outrageous. It's, it, it looks much more like the Senate uh, in design than the House of Representatives.
0: Well, I, I want to give you just a quick chance here to talk about wh- it, why it went unnoticed, the impact, for at least eight years.
1: Yeah, that's a um, that's a really good question. One of the reasons is there is a relatively small group of scholars that look at voting rights yes. and the Supreme Court, and Citizens United sort of suck the oxygen out of the air. Then also, it, it was kind of an of an ambiguous uh, case in that. Four, the Scalia coalition had four judges, justices in it, that said absolutely it's a political question we can't look at it. Kennedy gave kind of a mushy. I don't know. Maybe there's a standard we can't think of one. But if there was a usable standard, maybe it wouldn't be part. It wouldn't be political a political question. And then the four uh, um, liberals were very much uh, you know it's an equal protection issue. So because of the uncertainty of what the Supreme Court meant. Um, not as many people noticed it. However, other groups like Common Cause in D.C., which is worried about um, voting and democracy, um, has held a couple of seminars, uh, you know, uh, uh, conferences on it, not seminars, but conferences on it. Um, they've had a contest about gerrymandering. So there, it is a, an ongoing issue. It's probably a little too complicated for the mainstream press to talk about It's very easy to say, oh, Citizens United says anybody can give money, and they can all spend it, and money's going to ruin everything. But to actually understand Vieth, you've got to think about equal protection. You've got to think about political questions. You've got to think about gerrymandering. You've got to think about all sorts of things. And there was a conventional wisdom that it wasn't gerrymandering that made the difference, but rather something called the big sort, which is people just move to be where they want to be. So Democrats are more urban than they were. Right. Republicans are more rural than they were, and this accounts for the for the variation, not anything that intentionally happened. And this is kind of an easy answer, but we demonstrate, I think, pretty conclusively that it's a wrong answer. That it's not uh, it's not a result of just um, um, geographic repositioning of voters, but rather it's the repositioning of the lines around the voters that made the difference.
0: Well, yes, I, I asked Rick. Hassan uh, a similar yeah. question about his book on the voting rights act his book as plutocrats united yeah. is your book a bit of a manual for well placed advocates it and is, possible supreme court bench uh, members to reverse it, this very undemocratic uh, doctrine
1: it is absolutely that and that was actually our intent when okay. writing the book okay uh, we we the when kennedy says there is no justiciable standard that that could that we can use uh, reliably and easily uh, Tony McGann and I were sitting in my office uh, yes. when the opinion came down, and we were talking about it, and I said, yeah, that's crazy. Of course there is. Of course there is. We could use partisan bias, among other things. And um, so the, the genesis of the book is actually that very issue, that we want this to get into um, the court's hands so that they understand that there is actually a very easy, simple, straightforward – anybody with a calculator could do it um, standard.
0: Well, if anybody else has, is aware of how the Austin, Texas city is divvied up, you answered my question, but I want you yeah. to have a chance to run it by our listeners. Is that, and I'm still pondering what's going on here. If, if Austin sure. is Democrat with a D, a big uh, capital D town, right. but none of this, no part of the city is represented by a, right. a Democrat. So it, you're, you were talking about it, the. The way in which the districts have been drawn, it's make they're more competitive than if you had concentrated a district as in the center right. as a Democrat. But but if I were a constituent of that city and I look around and there isn't a Democratic person in the, that <laughs> delegation to be seen, right. I don't think that that is representative of so the uh, slide Let's tell your
1: voters what it kind of looks like. Austin looks like a bullseye, except the rest of the of the dart target is is all republican. So it's like a circle. The county that Austin is, is in is like a circle and it is surrounded by very republican counties. Now, the in order to get a democrat to represent Austin, you would have to draw the circle just around Austin. So you would have to exclude all the voters in all the counties around Austin, many of whom work in Austin, many of whom are, you know, are are they're in the suburbs, um, so Texas has lots and lots of counties. So the counties tend to be ge- sometimes they're geographically quite small. So you couldn't really do county by county. You would have too many, too many districts, too many national districts. So the choice is either do you do you cut uh, that county in half and and pile it in with some other counties to give Democrats maybe a shot at some of these things, or do you Do you sink them all into one to guarantee one Democratic nominee but get rid of any Democrats being elected, anything around it? So, of course, the Texas legislature really wants to favor Republicans. But there would be an impact if they drew a circle around Austin to say uh, we're going to make sure one Democrat gets elected to Congress from Austin. And that is – Democrats at other levels of government would no longer get elected um, because the congressional districts are used for other kinds of elections as well. Okay, that's the missing piece. Um, So you might, you know, uh, uh, you can you can think of different kinds of kinds of uh, uh, school board, you know, this sort of stuff. But but really, to get the Democrats, because they are so consolidated there, you would have to have you would end up with something like 85% registration of democrats in that district and then the districts around it would be 80% republican yes so okay. you would you would end up to to deliver the democratic vote uh, democratic con- congressman to that uh, er- geographic area you would end up ensuring that the the two to three congressional districts around it would also always deliver a republican so it, it – you know, you can make a solid argument either way for how to go about doing it, but um, in general, uh, there are a lot of Republicans in Texas. So right, right, um, right. right. The, the concern, I think, when they're districting has been subsumed in Texas with um, racial fairness over party fairness.
0: Well, so California got out of this predicament with the 2008 statewide initiative where an independent body draws up state and congressional districts. And it
1: works great.
0: Kudos to those who drafted the initiative and the California voters. And so I'm just wondering, Tony, as we're starting, because I'm not going to get to ask too many more questions left here, but this institution and this large state of ours, as well as others, maybe it's blunting our awareness of how other states are functioning possibly.
1: Well, you know, I I think that's probably true, and I, I also think that, um most voters are worried about their immediate neighborhood yep. and their state and their city and they don't really you know do, does how we do things in California resonate with people in Mississippi they probably don't ever think about it so the uh, what you have to probably have is the courts to intervene to say you've got to you've got a blunt partisan gerrymandering here's a way to do it and uh, have it spread and and there's actually reasons, by the way, the parties might want to get rid of partisan gerrymandering. Um, one of the reasons is uh, it's um, uh, you get better candidates yes. and better policymakers yeah. if it's actually competitive. Right. So you get better people. Um, two is the party becomes ungovernable if they all they have to do is satisfy their uh, primary voters and you can look at the house of representatives paul ryan has not been able to do anything as speaker of the house because his coalition is just ungovernable because all they have to worry about are their are their primary voters they never have to worry about their general election voters and if you if you shift to where there's a concern and it's about the general election then you get more responsible government you actually get parties doing things as opposed to simply uh... perpetuating their existence
0: well um, as we bring this segment to a close I get that your book is a manual for the Supreme Court bench, Tony, with, I mean, all earnestness, I hope that you'll rip the complete essence out of this tome, put it into a pamphlet so that all the public will read it, hold political salons around it, or here we go, set it to a musical with us shedding, (laughs) shedding not our clothing, but our sovereignty sovereignty in the last act.
1: I love it, I love it, I love it. Uh, we are working on um, media guides for the different Good. states that are most impacted by gerrymandering. And once the, once the uh, conventions are over, we're going to be sending these out to the primary newspapers, and we're going to try to – so we're genning up what we're doing. We're also going to write some blogs for, like, Monkey Cage, and uh, the London School of Economics has one, and some other things like this to try to get uh, uh, some attention to it and get it into the um, activist lawyer group's uh, hands. Uh, so that they can start incorporating it into their briefs.
0: All right. Well, Tony, it's good work and good to cover this with you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you.
1: I enjoyed it a lot.
0: All right. That was Tony Smith, UCI political science professor who's recently published Gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, Supreme Court, and the Future of Popular Sovereignty. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So we're going to bring up my next guest, Kylan Maxwell, surviving her spouse. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Thank you for staying with us. My next guest is Kylan Maxwell. She is the surviving spouse of Corporal Nathan Maxwell, a Marine who ended his own life in June 2010, 11 days after returning from a deployment to Iraq. Nathan was 24 years old and had served for five years in the Marine Corps. Since Nathan's death. Kylan has found strength and healing through serving others. With this deeper purpose, she attends to military survivors in the form of outdoors-based adventure therapy retreats, among other programs. She is also a strong advocate for veteran suicide awareness and has recently volunteered to foster service dogs being trained for veterans struggling with PTSD. Kylan earned a bachelor's degree in health sciences from the University of Missouri, where I think she met. Her husband, but we'll, she might say that in a little uh, the opener here. She works full-time as a retreat coordinator for the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Currently, she resides in in California. It's always good to bring to Ask a Leader another contributor who does the hard work on the personal level and contributes so much to the TAPS organization. Today, she comes to us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show, Kylan. Kylan.
2: Hi, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you. First, Kylan, would you please take this moment to tell us a bit about your husband, Nathan?
2: I would love to. Um, I met my husband, Nathan, actually, when I was still a senior in high school. We met through mutual friends, and he had just returned from boot camp a couple weeks before I met him, and we were inseparable after that first lunch at Taco Bell. And um, Nathan loved the Marine Corps. He loved the purpose that he had there, and it was very important to him to serve his country. And he also felt very strongly about getting an education, so he um, was in the Marine Corps Reserve while he was in school full-time. And Nathan was the goofiest person probably I've ever met, and he just had a heart of gold. He would do anything for you and often did for sometimes people he didn't even know. And he was just so very loved and um, definitely
0: a bright light in my life. And you mentioned that his days upon his return were up and down. So this must have been a very difficult time, just those 11 days and surviving those 11 days later. It was a very difficult time. Um, He had actually returned to the States
2: to do some debriefing following deployment, and so was not home but was in the state for a couple months. And so upon returning home officially, it was 11 days after that that he um, ended his life. And it was very much up and down, um, very, very hard for both of us. And him trying to um, just survive and me trying to help him survive was a survival in its own right.
0: So... Kylan, at this point, what is your relationship with Nathan's family? I know there is a, I, I talked with Don Lipstein earlier, uh, who'd been on this show, and there there was a different process. I think that he's experiencing with, with uh, in-laws and daughter-in-law and that kind of thing. So, can what has it been like with your, with with Nathan's family? Yeah, I'm actually very close
2: with Don, and I know that he has significantly improved his relationship with his um, daughter-in-law over the years since his son's death. Unfortunately, I have not had a relationship with my husband's family. Um, they grieve in a very different way than I do, and I have been the center of a lot of blame since his death. And so there's been no relationship there.
0: And I guess that's a component of how you can intervene with your peer survivors that join the, the TAPs group? Absolutely. Any personal
2: experience contributes to relatability. And I, in working through the TAPs, I interact with a lot of people of different relationships and different circumstances. So I can bring to the table my experience in struggling with
0: so that different. Yes. Go ahead. No, would you tell us about how amidst your grieving, this lifeline, knowing a volunteer from TAPS reached out to you.
2: I think it's safe to say that TAPS saved my life or um, effectively the life that I thought that I had lost. And I didn't feel normal. I didn't know what normal was. I felt very alone. And I had never talked to another widow before, another surviving family member. I just felt like I was the only one going through that. And my family, my friends couldn't relate to what I was feeling. So the very first time I attended TAPS, I just felt this perpetual hug, this significant welcome that has never gone away. I finally felt like I had a place, I had a safe place, and I fit in somewhere, and people could understand what I felt.
0: Uh, reading up, getting ready, I uh, read a piece where you said that this is where you put your wedding band back on. Is that safe? You know, um,
2: I've come a long way. A lot of things have changed, and I oh, think wow. that was probably in um, within a couple years of his death, and sometimes I did. When I went to TAPS, I was with other widows, and we felt like that was the place where we could talk about our husbands again and we could really feel that relationship that we were grieving in. So often in the early days, I would put my wedding band back on.
0: So what do you tell us, um, TAPS is moving now into refining their interventions, your interventions, with the attention given to the rest of the story, not the morbid, not the, the struggling, the, 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 the after a death concentration. Could you talk about this necessity of changing the narrative, changing how the military and civilians view veterans?
2: Absolutely. So at TAPS, we really like to focus on the life. We like to focus on um, the reason why we have such a deep grief is because of this person that we loved and these veterans, they come back from war and they have this separation from the connection that they felt, the separation from the sense of belonging and the people around them that understood and could relate. And they're struggling to adjust to life without war. And so they come back oftentimes a very changed person and it's hard for their family or just public in general to really relate to them and be able to um, give them the acceptance and the space that they need to transition back to that. Um, and so we, ataps, certainly focus on the life of our loved one and our life now. What we've been able to do in moving forward—you never truly move on, but you move forward and you're able to rebuild your life in a new normal.
0: Well, let's let's talk about too the phrases, the notions that civilians harbor that reinforce the downward spiral of an ailing veteran struggling to adjust to civilian life. For instance, how we express suicide is very important. Please tell us about that.
2: There is a lot of uh, separation in the understanding of the veteran and of the civilians in relation to mental illness, and along with the honor and respect that the military members have, they also struggle with the stigma of mental health and of suicide. And it's hard for them to ask for help, impossible sometimes. And aside from the pressures of civilians, they are pressured by their careers and right. by their peers, and they don't want to appear as weak. They don't want to let anyone down. They have been um, honed into these warriors, into these people that are going to save us and. Provide for us and our freedom, and for them to say, Actually, I'm really struggling right now. This is difficult, is really hard for them to do, and to possibly risk losing their career over that um, prevents a lot of people from wanting to come forward and admit that. And the general public, when they do hear of or become aware of mental health issues, they, they don't understand where it's coming from, and they don't understand how how life is being perceived through the veterans' eyes. And so oftentimes it's just um, kind of shamed and overlooked as something that's significant and needs to be addressed. And if someone broke their leg, we'd take them to the doctor and have the leg fixed. But when their brains and their hearts are broken, oftentimes we just want to shove it under the rug and pretend like it will heal itself.
0: And we've mentioned it before with other guests from TAPS. It's so important that the vocabulary we use it's does, a person does it's not commit suicide as you say that commitment commit to suicide is it is a wholly different sensibility that does not match the situation
2: it is and I think before this situation applied to me directly I would have never thought right. a, twice about it but saying that someone committed suicide is saying that they committed a crime. The word commit is used to, to describe crimes and to imply that they did something um, inherently wrong. And while suicide is not something to be proud of, it's certainly not something that they consciously decided was a good idea. And um, to understand that they were in this, such a dark place that they felt like this was their best option, if you consider the people who in 9-11 jumped from the burning buildings, they didn't want to die. They wanted to escape the fire inside the building, and these veterans struggling with PTSD, they're in a burning building. And for yes. them, oh. oftentimes, the only escape from that burning building is suicide and ending their pain and ending the pain they feel that they're putting on to other people.
0: For those of you who have just joined us, you're hearing Kylan Maxwell, a volunteer and now staff member an adventure coordinator of TAP, that's Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, she is the surviving spouse of Marine Corps Reserves Corporal Nathan Maxwell, who died by suicide. This is Ask a Leader, 88.9 FM in Irvine. And the media also has a role in addressing this suicide issue that now the number 22 is associated with a sort of an averaging of how many members of the military die by suicide, I do believe per day is it, but that 22 is a number that plagues those that are ailing who are in a, spi- a downward spiral and aren't getting enough help. So that the media is reinforcing this hopelessness. Um, and it's, as you said, there's a glamorizing of suicidal behavior and so the media messages are very important to reverse this hopelessness uh, with the simplistic explanations that are given and the the, as we, we're talking about the uh, the glamorizing aspect, um, instead we're that I'm sure you're working on how these messages reintroduce prevention that focuses on solutions to stigma. You are very
2: right, Claudia. Um, the 22 number is not representative of safe messaging, and it's very important to remind people that there is hope and that there's a reason to be alive. And in incorporating that number 22, which is wildly inaccurate, um, not based on current information, people say sometimes if 22 other people did it, then there's not any way to fix this, and I'm just going to be one of those 22, Um, which has happened. Sadly, people have um, ended their life leaving notes indicating that they were just one of the 22 that day. And it instills a lot of hopelessness and has the opposite effect of what was intended.
0: And Memorial Day is just one day out of the year. As as civilians, we don't get to act like PTSD or veterans' premature deaths aren't happening amidst us. Would you talk to us about how your processing, your loss on a daily basis, means that we can and ought to be more open about your grief.
2: For a lot of Americans, Memorial Day is the day that the pool opens or the day that you have your first barbecue of the year. But for surviving family members, every day is Memorial Day, and every day is a day that we remember the person that we lost, and they deserve to be remembered. And while on Memorial Day we go above and beyond to have ceremonies or events to show our respect and honor and to remember them every single day, we are remembering that person who was such a big part of our life and has left such a big hole. And for the public just to recognize that death ends a life, but it doesn't end a relationship, they're always someone who's going to be in our heart. And it will always be something that we remember and reminding of reminding of us of it is not something that's going to create sadness. It's going to acknowledge our sadness. It's already there. And it's not something that will ever escape our minds. So to recognize that the loss will permanently be there and to respect every day that there's been a significant loss that is meaningful in our life and to allow people the freedom to remember and to grieve and to not make it um, something that should not be talked about for fear of upsetting anyone.
0: And repeat that. That, that This is vital for people not to step away from that, thinking that they're protecting you from your grief by not bringing it up, but they're they're, uh, dismissing your grief by not approaching you about it.
2: Acknowledging the loss is always better than ignoring the loss, and it's not something we will be reminded of because it's already there. Yes. Even some of the people that are closest to me um, struggle with knowing what to say. And sometimes they've not said anything on the most important days for fear of upsetting me. But just showing up and being present for that person is the most important thing you can do. And letting people feel the emotions. It's okay to feel upset or to feel angry even, to feel lonely, but letting them feel those emotions and being there with them as they feel them is the best way to acknowledge that grief.
0: And I wanna give you a chance to talk about how TAPS, certainly you are providing a great deal to peer new survivors. And also you just continue to also benefit your own association. Maybe you could just briefly speak with your work with mothers surviving their offspring suicide. That's been a revelation for you. Yeah, TAPS has been just an incredible platform
2: for me to be able to help others going through something so very similar to what I went through and to find healing myself as I see a reflection of myself in the other survivors and um, to be a role model and to stand in front of them and say, I was where you are and here I am now and you can be here too. And to experience the loss through other people's eyes, I am fortunate enough to work with mothers and spouses and children and siblings and several other populations and that has really opened my eyes and changed my perspective on the mothers especially grieving the loss of their son because I wasn't able to experience that with my own mother-in-law I am able to see just a little glimpse of what it's like from their side and it's been I think healing for me just to be able to relate to them a little bit better. I don't know what it's like to lose a child, and I can't imagine what a great loss that is. And I respect that loss, absolutely. And to be in that space with the mothers and to share in the losses of their son and my husband, we can share a little bit of our hearts with each other and help each other understand that the losses are very different, but they're not any more or less than the other.
0: What you also, what you bring now in your professional capacity to TAPS is what is known as adventure therapy. It's an antidote dealing with what survivors must deal. Can you talk a little bit about that and we can transition to where some of those upcoming events in Orange County, at Fort Bragg, in Alaska are parts of those programs. Yeah, this is
2: something that I am really excited about all the time. I've been doing this for a few years and I still just It's surreal that I'm able to do this and the impact that it has. So I, especially with TAPS, organize and facilitate outdoors-based adventure therapy retreats. And what that means is for three to four days, we bring survivors from all over the country to a specific location, and we give them activities to do that challenge them, that push them outside their comfort zone, that maybe scare them a little bit, but The goal is to empower them, to give them that peer connection connection with someone else who can say, I know what you feel like, let's do this together, and to encourage them to support each other physically and emotionally as well. So we try to create a safe environment that really encourages organic connection, and really we set up the logistics and we get them there, but they do the hard work. And I always tell them that at the end, the bonds that they create they did that we can only make arrangements make a schedule and feed them and they do the rest and so we are always trying to find new ways to do this and to really empower these survivors and to help them learn that they can live after their loss and to give them healthy outlets for grieving we like to change their trajectory from one of my life will never be the same to my life can be good again and so um our upcoming events are, like you said, we have one in Orange County, and we'll have 20 surviving adult children, so they've all lost a parent serving in the military. Mm-hmm. And some of them were very young when they lost their parent, and now they're all at least 19 years old. So they will be together um, from all over the country, just experiencing, some of them for the first time, what it feels like to be with another person who also lost their parent in a traumatic way, that they similar to what they did. That's um, so July. that would be really fantastic, and it's always very rewarding to just see the light in their eyes when they finally feel understood by someone else. And they go home with these lifelong connections, and they have someone to text or to call late at night when they're just really struggling or when something really great happens that they wish they could have shared with their parent. They have that person. We um, At TAPS, we like to say we find our people, and um, they really find those people that they can take home with them and, and have those lifelong friendships. Um, and in trying to always do different things that serve people in different ways, we are also skydiving with the Golden Knights in July. So we have uh, collaborated with the Army Golden Knights who do the air shows. They do the performances. They do the training for um, the paratroopers, and they are going to strap themselves to 16 of our survivors and out of a perfectly good airplane. So for some people that don't want to come and sit down and talk about their feelings, that's the way that they can kind of live outside themselves for a minute and experience that free feeling. And for some people, feel closer to their loved ones who might have served in the Army or um, been a paratrooper or something similar in the sky that they feel like they can really be close to their loved one again and to honor them in such a big way.
0: Well, we want to mention that this Dana Point event for adult children, that's on July 21st through the 24th for adults. As We said adult children of surviving a veteran. And then Fort Bragg in August, there are some uh, activities. And later on in Alaska, and you said Alaska is some of the most uh, popular, uh, it's a popular venue for this uh, high-adrenal exercise you put these survivors through. Um, And so I want for people as we close, they can go to... TAPS.org to find out what events are coming up in your immediate area so that you can benefit. And the reason, I don't think we had a chance to get to this, but the reason all of these interventions are so essential, Kylan, correct, that the the survivors have an increased risk of suicide themselves? They do. Oftentimes, they are in such a
2: dark place and don't feel that they can go on without their other half and without their... um, immediate family member who was such a big part of their life. And so for them, they can kind of relate to the hopelessness that their loved ones felt and feel like that might be a good option for them as well. So giving them such a positive outlet and a reason to thrive and to survive is really essential.
0: All right. Well, Kylan, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. And I will be thinking of you on all days of the year, not just next Monday, and all of your compatriots working so hard at Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and I want to honor your loss as we close this program with you. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from two members of the local chapters of the Climate Change Lobby, Kathy Orlinski and Mark Tabbert, to shake down how much climate change figures into the electoral process this season. We're at the precipice, but you might not know it with the kind of attention that science is getting in this electoral process. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.